Well, as we begin today, many of you have asked, how is my wife doing? If you were unaware of it, she had her tonsils out the uh, Friday before Christmas, so we kind of had a silent night around our house. Um, When my six-year-old son had his out a few years ago, you know, you're supposed to be quiet for a while. On day four, we found him trying to jump rope, and uh, we were trying to get him calm so he wouldn't tear stitches. Well, Kim hasn't been jumping rope for the last uh, two weeks. She's been laying low. So thank you for all your prayers. Uh, She's doing much better, so we appreciate all of your help and support. Well, one of the first and greatest privileges a parent has is to name their child. And when you give a child a name, it's often carried throughout their life. And people choose names in different ways. Sometimes... People look in the Bible and they find a a name to associate their child with one of the godly heroes of the past. Others will choose a name like faith, hope, or grace to speak of God's grace. When my wife and I named our children, we chose names to speak of God's grace to us. Uh, As you've heard before, we went through 12 years of infertility. And the doctor said we would never be able to have children. And so... When God gave us our first daughter, Sarah, we named her Sarah Elizabeth in honor of Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was barren, and Elizabeth, John the Baptist's wife, who was barren, in order to remind us of God's great grace. And when Hannah came along, we named her for another woman in the Bible who had been barren. And then Zachary, our son, is named after Zacharias, the husband of John the Baptist, of of Elizabeth, John the Baptist's father, also because they had gone through infertility. Not that we had needed a reminder of God's grace, but we chose those names just to tell others about what God had done for us and our family. Some turn not to the Bible. They will pass on a family name. My son is named David. His middle name is after uh, Kim's dad, David. And so some of you have done the same thing, chosen a name of significance. Others will choose something surrounding an event. After Hurricane Katrina hit the coast, there was a spike in the number of girls that were named Katrina. And other times, parents will shoot for the unique or the outrageous. Some of you know we had a governor here in Texas named Hogg who named his daughter Ima. So she was Ima Hogg. And uh, she didn't like her name, but she was never married. So in order to change her name, she just went by the nickname of Ima Jean. And when my wife, Kim, first met me, she and her friends said that I was a really nice guy, but they laughed about the poor girl who would marry me and get the last name of Poopart. And uh, you better be careful what you laugh at, because two and a half years later, Kim took that name. Now, sometimes people will change a name, not through marriage, but as a publicity stunt. Many years ago, back when the Cowboys were actually playing uh, football... um, (laughs) They were in the Super Bowl against the Pittsburgh Steelers. That was 1996, ancient history at this point. But there was a town here in Texas named Pittsburgh, Texas, and they didn't want any confusion over where their loyalty was. So for the day of the Super Bowl, they had their name officially changed to Cowboys, Texas. Now, some of us are a little bit like them. As believers, we're a little bit like rabid football fans, and we will change names and behavior to match that. We'll cover our cars with Christian bumper stickers. We put the little fish, those ictus symbols on the back of our car. Uh, We put on clothes that declare our loyalty to the Lord. We'll hang crosses and other things all over our bodies to say, this is who we belong to. But I'm afraid, like Pittsburgh, Texas, when the big day was over, oftentimes we strip off all of the outward trappings and we go back to just 
how things were. When the Super Bowl was over, their name went back to Pittsburgh, Texas. And I wonder for how many of us, when church is over, when we walk out the doors of Wayside, when some big event like Women of Faith, Promise Keepers, See You at the Pole at School is over, how many of us go back to being just like we were before? We change our name and our behavior so that we can blend back in with the crowd. As we look at the book of Ruth today, as we turn to chapter uh, 1 and we pick back up our story, what we're going to find is that there is a woman in the, in the story who was named Naomi. And Naomi changed her name. And as we look at the new name she chose, I want you to think about your own life this morning and to ask yourself if you could change your name. If you could change your name today, what would it be? What name would you choose to describe yourself? As we look at Ruth chapter 1, where I invite you to turn today, and we pick up the story in verse 19, we find that Ruth and Naomi are headed back to Bethlehem. It tells us in verses 19 through 22, So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came about when they had come to Bethlehem that the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, as we read this, there are two remarkable things I want you to notice. If you remember back when we began the story of Ruth, what we saw is that there was a famine in the land. Remember, Bethlehem means the house of bread, and what we found is there was no bread in the house of bread, but now we're told that the barley harvest has begun. There is food again in the house of bread. The second thing we find is that these ladies have arrived safely. Now, this this may not seem like a big deal to you, but I want you to remember this story is said during the days of Judges, a time when there was lawlessness in the land, when it wasn't even safe to walk the streets, much less for two widows, two women traveling alone from Moab all the way to Bethlehem, and God kept them safe on the road. So they arrive uh, in a time when two women alone would have been an easy target for robbers or much worse. As they arrive, it says the whole city was stirred. Now, the root of the Hebrew word that is used here is hum, which I love because it's appropriate, because the city is humming with excitement. In fact, the the verb form that is used here is a niphile form, which intensifies the meaning. What it's literally telling you is this town is thrown into chaos. You can imagine it's a small town, and this is the biggest news that has come along in a decade. Naomi is home. And so the the news is echoing down the streets. If they had had phones back then, the switchboards would have been been overloaded and fried. Everybody is talking about Naomi. Remember who she is? She's an Ephrathite. When we looked at Naomi, we saw that the Ephrathites were the, the old money, the established families. She was one of the original families of this area. And the old society person is home after 10 years of missing So this is big news that's going around the town. And as the women gather around her, they say, is this Naomi? Some translations put it, can it be Naomi? If you're using the King James Version, you'll notice it has the word if in italics. And when you find a word in italics in your Bibles, that means it's supplied. It's not in the original text. It's a proper translation. 
But this is almost a rhetorical statement. It's an exclamation. As the crowd is surrounding her, they're excited and they say, this is Naomi. Now, while some are having great joy at her return, there are others who are having great joy at gossiping. What they're doing is they're saying, this, this is Naomi, the old society, the high and mighty, rich Naomi has returned. And look at her. She's a shattered wreck. She's wearing rags for clothes. Nobody is with her. And they're enjoying watching her arrive. And as Naomi hears these different women all around her talking, what she says is, do not call me Naomi. Do not call me Naomi. Do you remember what her name means? Pleasant. She says, friends, I'm not pleasant. I'm Mara. The name means bitter. She says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. As she's standing there for the first time in years on the old familiar streets, think of the memories that flooded back to her. The last time she was there, she had her husband Elimelech. Remember, he died back in Moab. Her two sons that she left with, they've also died in Moab. She's come back as a widow. She's remembering her boys playing in those streets, and suddenly she says they're all gone. She left as a As a society woman, she's returned as a penniless widow. And she says, I'm bitter. She changes her name to match her circumstances, something that we see being done throughout the Bible. Do you remember Abraham? His name began as Abram, which meant exalted father. But God changed his name to become the father of a great number because he said, you will become the father of a nation. And so his name was changed to match his new circumstances. Jacob was one whose name meant supplanter or heel catcher. He was a schemer. But God changed his name after the night of wrestling there with the angel of the Lord to Israel. To the name that a nation carries today, which means one who strives or persists with God. Jacob had been one who ran ahead of God. He, he ran his own schemes. But after that night of wrestling, you'll remember that God touched his hip and he changed the way that Jacob walked permanently. He now limped. He could no longer run ahead of God. And friends, for those of us who have encountered the living Lord and have had our names and our lives changed as well, the way we walk should change as well. There, he had been one who was cocky and was used to doing things his way, but he became spiritually dependent upon God. In the New Testament, we see other names that have been changed. Simon was called Cephas. Simon, who had this explosive anger, a brash man was changed to the rock. Because when he encountered Christ, Jesus said, I will use you in a new way. You will be the rock that my church is built upon. If God were to change your name today, what would it be? What would your name be changed to? As you think about your life, if, if it were being described in some way according to the way that God has changed you or is using you today, what would it be? There was another man in the Bible whose name was changed. In Acts 4.36, we read, And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, was also called Barnabas by the apostles. Here was a man who was not renamed by God but by other believers. The name Barnabas literally means son of encouragement. As they looked at this believer, this man, and the way that he lived, and the way that he encountered and changed others, they said, you know, your name is a son of encouragement. 
because of the way that you are. If I were to talk to people who see you every day where you work, your neighbors, or where you go to school, what would they tell me about you? What name would they give to you? If I were to tell them that you're somebody who's a Christian, would they go, whoa, I I didn't know that. I, I, I don't see the family resemblance. I don't see that individual reflecting Christ. The name Christ, Christian means a little Christ. We have the privilege of bearing the name of our Savior. And if somebody were to look at you, would they be able to say, I see the name. I see the family resemblance. Are you somebody like Barnabas? Are you an encourager? Are you more like Jacob? A schemer, somebody who steps on others to get ahead. What would people say about you if they saw your name tag and it had the name of Christian? You know, of all the names that could be used to describe us, what would your name tag say? Let me ask you the question in a different way. If everywhere you went, you were wearing a name tag like this that said Christian, what would that do to your behavior? Would it change? Back when I was a policeman, I was training a rookie one day. And uh, as a field training officer, you would get these academy graduates fresh out of the street, and they would have to kind of learn what the, the world was really like on the street. And I had this, this rookie. I was working in far north Dallas, a very affluent, nice neighborhood. And uh, we stopped this car that had been uh, driving erratically and was speeding. And so this 20-something-year-old rookie comes up to the window, and, you know, it's his first traffic stop. And he's, he's all scared, and he gets up to the window, and he says, uh, Ma'am, may I have your driver's license and insurance? And I've come around to the passenger side where I'm kind of covering him. And as I look in, I see it's a nicely dressed middle-aged woman. She's got the windows down so I can hear everything that's going on. And as he asks her for the, the information, she lets loose with a string of profanity that would make a sailor blush. And this rookie kind of looks across the car at me like, What do I do? And I'm like, you know. So he asks again, and she lets loose with another string of profanity and starts to tell him he needs to be out doing his real job, catching murderers and rapists and other people like that. And and he can't get a word in edgewise. She's just just cutting cutting him down and yelling and cussing. And and, and this, this car that we stopped was a rolling billboard for Christianity. It had my boss's a a Jewish carpenter. It had a little fish family. There were, you know, one for the mom and dad and several little ones for the kids. And there were all kinds of Christian stickers. I, I started to think maybe the car had been stolen because, you know, the woman in there. So as, as this is going on and on, I finally leaned in the window and I said, ma'am, are you a Christian? And she just about choked on her words. And she said, yes, I am. And I said, well, I am too. And you have a horrible witness. Now, I could have gotten complained on. I'm surprised she actually didn't call internal affairs for that. But the reason I said that is this. I had been witnessing to this this rookie for two weeks. And she was now witnessing to him in a different way. She was wearing her name tag, Hello, I'm a Christian. And she was sharing with this non-believing young officer what Christians sometimes look like when we're hiding our name tags. Friends, how many times have you forgotten that you're wearing your name tag that says, Hello, I'm a Christian? Have you ever been out where you've got a a cross on or a T-shirt and and you you start uh, getting crosswise with somebody and you want to cover it up? Have you ever reached up and kind of tucked it in your shirt or kind of covered your Hello, I'm a Christian name tag? What would happen if we had to walk around with name tags 
that told everybody we're a believer? Would it change the way that we live? Now, I know some of you say, well, Roger, I take care of that. I I don't ever want to hurt the name of Christ, so I'm part of the secret service part of Christianity. (laughs) I don't have any bumper stickers on my car. I don't wear any crosses. I don't let anybody know I'm a believer, right? Is that what we do? Friends, that doesn't honor God either. You know, it's much easier to change our name than it is to change our behavior, isn't it? And I think that that's what some of us do. As we look at what Naomi is doing here, it's something like that. She says, you know, I don't like the name tag I'm wearing anymore. This is pleasant. So let's just change it. Change my name to how I feel right now. It's bitter. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been bitter at God? He didn't come through the way you wanted. He didn't give you the grades you thought you deserved. You didn't get that promotion. You weren't treated the way you should have been. And so you decide that you're going to change your name tag. There's a book that was written called Children's Letters to God, and in it there was a a little boy who was writing. I think it was the little boy. He says, Dear God, it rained for our whole vacation, and is my father mad? He said some things about you that people are not supposed to say, but I hope you won't hurt him anyway. Signed, your friend, but I'm not going to tell you who I am. (laughs) Now, I think God knew who the father was. Most of us, we don't get bitter about things like having it rain during our vacation, do we? I mean, they're bigger things. They're more important things. Somebody we love is sick. We've lost a loved one. There's been some other crisis in our life that's happened. And, and as we look at what's happening, we're a little bit like Naomi. I mean, think about Naomi. She fled her home because of a famine that was in the land. She lost her husband. She lost both her sons, and now she's returned broken and bitter. She's a penniless widow who says, don't call me pleasant. I have no reason to rejoice. In fact, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. You know, as Naomi says this, she not only chooses a new name for herself, she chooses a new name for God. So far in the book of Ruth, she's used the name Yahweh, God's covenant name, his holy name. She's used the name Elohim. And now she chooses a new name. She calls him El Shaddai. Shaddai means the almighty, the all-powerful, the sovereign, self-sufficient one. And what she does here is she brings an indictment against God. She says, here I am, a helpless widow. And God, the almighty, this all-powerful God, he's, he's had nothing better to do than to put his thumb down and squish me and my family. The root of this word means mountain. It has a sense of possessing durability, trustworthiness. As you look at Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3, it's the name that the Hebrew people knew God by before he revealed the name of Yahweh, before he said, I am that I am. It's the name that he used to uh, speak to Abraham, the 99-year-old Abram, in Genesis 17:1, where he promised to give Abram children and to make a nation The Almighty, (coughs) excuse me, the all-powerful one who can accomplish the impossible said, I will give you children. As we understand this part and the power and person of who God is, it will help us when we face these these times of suffering in our own lives. How many of you have ever heard somebody going through tough times in their life? And as Christians, what do we like to quote when we find somebody going through these times? Have you ever told somebody about Romans 8.28? 
And we know that in all things God works together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Have you ever quoted that verse to somebody or had somebody quote it to you? Why don't we follow up with verse 29? Do you know what Romans 8, 29 tells us? It gives us God's purpose. It says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see, when God brings suffering in our lives, it's not a punitive God, a God who just likes to watch us squirm. It's a God who is purifying us. It is a God who is at work in our lives to bring about change in our lives, to change us to look more and more like Christ so that we reflect more and more the image of the one whose name we bear. Just as gold and precious metal are purified, we as God's people are put in the refining fire at times, and God purifies and burns away things in our lives. God was at work doing that with Naomi. Naomi said, God is using his power against me, but what she failed to see is God was using his power to help her. They had run away from God, remember, as we saw in a previous message? They had gone to live in a foreign land where the foreign gods were worshipped. And God used the acid of suffering to burn away all the bonds that were holding them back in that place. And now with nothing left in Moab for her, she's finally willing to return home to the true God. And this is what God was doing in her life. Naomi says in verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? You know, as you read this statement, it reminds me of something that happened several years ago. My, my daughter Hannah came downstairs. I was in the kitchen and she was, she was sobbing. I mean, she was at the point where those big crocodile tears were coming down. She was crying so hard she couldn't even breathe. She's... <gasps> And and I'm trying to calm her down. What's Hannah, what's happened? I'm holding her. Honey, are you okay? What's going on? And finally, as she got calm enough to speak, she she said to me, she said, Zachary hit me back for no reason. (laughs) Now, her own words indicted her, didn't they? (laughs) It was the first time her little brother had hit her back. And it scared her and surprised her. And I've warned them. I said, girls, he's going to be bigger than you someday, so you better, you better stop. And as we read the words here, Naomi indicts herself. She says, the Almighty, the all-powerful God has been against me. But look at what it is that she says. She says, I went out. Naomi and her family were the ones who ran away from God. God didn't drive them out of the land. They were the ones who ran away. Do you remember why God had famine in the land? As we went through the book of Judges, we saw it was God's discipline to drive his people back to him in repentance. That's what God was trying to do in Bethlehem. And they ran away. She said, I went out. How often do we do the same thing as Naomi? How often do we make a willful, disobedient choice and then we blame God for the consequences? Has that ever happened in your own life? Naomi and her family were running away from God. And she says here, the Lord has brought me back empty. God went and got her. He loved her too much to leave her where she was, and he finally got her to come home. Her words again convict her. It says she didn't come back on her own. The word for brought back has the the meaning of return. It's in the causative form. She literally says, God caused me to return. 
He made it so uncomfortable there that I had to come home. C.S. Lewis once said, pain is a megaphone that God uses to raise a deaf world. Has God ever had to shout into your life that you don't listen to the gentle whispering of the Holy Spirit, that God has to continue to move in your life and do things to burn away bonds that are holding you in a place you don't belong? This is what God did. She says, the Lord has brought me back empty. God had to turn up the volume through the trials and tribulations in her life. He kept applying the acid, burning away those things. And finally she comes home. As she's complaining about God, she says, He used His power against me. But what she forgot to see was God was using His power to bring her home. God could have said, you know, Naomi, you chose that life there. You ran away from me. I'm done with you. Good luck in that foreign land. But He never forgot her. And friends, God does the same thing with us. The scriptures tell us that God loves us too much to leave us like we are when we are in disobedience. (laughs) Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, God loves you and me, it says. He loves us and that's why he disciplines us. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. The good news is this. When we sin and we run away from God, God promises he will bring discipline into our life. If he doesn't go after you, friends, it means that you are an illegitimate child. You may not even belong to him. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time to seem best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Have you read the whole book of Ruth yet? If you haven't done so, go home and finish reading it. What you will find is there is a time coming where Naomi will find the fruit of righteousness. She will find God's peace and rest. She will find God's blessing. Naomi will find all that God has for her, what's being talked about here. Do you remember what God's hesed means? In a past sermon, we talked about God's hesed, his loyal love. And we saw the the richness of that word. If you were not here or if you need a reminder of that message, go online to waysidechapel.org. The messages are there. And look at what the word hesed means, God's loyal love. This is what he's showing. In verse 22, we're given just a, a tiny preview of the good things that are coming. It says there is barley in the land. The land that has been decimated by famine now has a crop that is ready to be brought in. God has not forgotten his people. The book of Ruth began in famine and the family departed. Now Naomi returns to Bethlehem and the harvest is beginning and there will be the beginning of a new family. Not only is there grain in the land, but notice what else is mentioned in verse 22. It says, so Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabitess. Naomi does as many of us do, and she focuses on what she doesn't have. She said to all the people, remember, she's standing there in the middle of the street. The crowd of women is all around her. The men are out in the fields working the harvest. So all the ladies are there. And as they look at Naomi, they say, what's going on? And she says, I have nothing. 
Ruth is standing right there. How would you feel if you were Ruth? Ruth is the one who has nothing. Remember Ruth, the young woman who left her, her home in Moab? Ruth, the one who returned with Naomi. Naomi's there in a place she knows. She has friends all around her. Ruth is the one who has nothing. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 15, we're going to find that Ruth is described as being better than seven sons. That was an idiom in that day to say, you won the lottery. The highest blessing you could ever have would be to have seven sons. And what we're being told later is that Ruth is better than seven sons. And yet at the moment, Naomi says, I have nothing. As you look at your life today, how many of you feel like Naomi? Do you feel like you have nothing? Are you missing the blessings that God has for you? As you look at your life, what is it that you're failing to see? You know, sometimes the things we're complaining about are the very things that we should be thanking God for. For instance, when is the last time you thank God for the taxes you pay? Anybody here done that lately? Do you know when we pay taxes, it means we've earned some money? Or we own some property that we can pay taxes on? Have you ever been thankful for that fact? Have you been thankful for the clothes that maybe fit a little too snugly, especially coming out of the Christmas holidays? You know what that means? It means you've been eating well. Well, maybe not the best food, but you've been eating, right? And so you're not going hungry. What about the last time you had a a huge load of laundry that you did? Did you grumble and complain about that? Or did you thank God that you had so many clothes that you, you could be wearing clothes and doing laundry? There are a lot of people in the world who don't have that. When you have to park at the far end of the parking lot, if you're ever here coming in late and you know you've either had to take the shuttle or park way out somewhere in the distance, have you ever thanked God for two things? First of all, that you had a car to get here. And second of all, that you were capable of walking across the parking lot. Or maybe even add a third. Thank God that the church is growing to the point where the parking is full. This second service, we have standing room only in here many weeks as there are so many young people coming and coming to know the Lord. Are we thankful for those things? Have you ever uh, been thankful for the person you're sitting behind in church who's singing off key? You know, what that means is, first of all, you can hear... And second of all, it means that they're here and you're here. Are you thankful for those things? Have you ever had a teenager who's sitting on the couch uh, texting or playing something instead of doing the dishes? Are you thankful, first of all, that he or she is home, that you know where they are and that they're safe, and then next that you've been blessed with that, that child? Now, I know they can be challenging at times, but are you thankful for them? Next time... The alarm clock goes off and you have to wake up in the morning. Do you thank God that it means he's given you another day? Naomi was blinded by the blessing she had. In all her bitterness, she overlooked the blessing that was right there in front of her. She said, all I have is Naomi. I mean, Naomi said, all I have is Ruth who's standing there. This is Ruth who in verse 16 said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Naomi said, I have nothing. But Ruth is standing right there. Ruth, that verse 22 tells us, is the Moabitess. 
You see, this is something that the people remind her of. The people put a name tag on Ruth that said foreigner, stranger, outsider. This is Bethlehem. This is the land of Israel. You're a foreigner. You don't belong here. As we sit here today, may I remind you that there are people all around you that may be wearing this name tag this morning? People who walked in here today that feel like an outsider, a stranger, a foreigner. And as they walk through the door of Wayside, they're wondering, what is it going to be like this morning? Is this place friendly? Will somebody talk to me? Will I be welcome here? Friends, they're not just here at Wayside. They, they live next door to you. They're where you work. They're on the base where you serve. They're in the halls of the school. There are people who are walking around wearing this name tag, foreign or stranger, outsider. And they're wondering, will I be welcome? Will people here make me feel welcome? You know, just a few weeks ago, I was standing up front here at the end of a service in a And a young man in the second service came to the front. And he walked up to me and he said, I am blown away by this place. He said, people here are so friendly. He said, people are talking to me. And you may think, well, that's not too unusual, Roger, but you, you didn't see the young man standing before me. He had a shaved head. He had a mohawk. He had spikes out of his ear. He was committed to the the body art of tattooing, he was covered in them. And he was one of these angry young people who was almost daring people to love him. In fact, he even said that to me. He said, look at me. He said, don't, don't you see this? And I smiled at him. And, and I touched my chest and I said, you know, First Samuel 16, 7 says that God doesn't look at the externals, he looks at the heart. And I said... God wants your heart, and I put my hand on his chest. And he ended up coming to Christ. And it wasn't that moment that did it, per se. It was the four weeks he had been going to the college group where some of these clean-cut professionals were loving him. It was when he walked through the doors into this sanctuary, and people didn't treat him as a stranger, an outsider. And he came to Christ. And friends, it's not just people who on the outside look like that. There are people that walk through the doors here that are wearing a three-piece suit that are also strangers and outsiders because you don't know what's inside them. You don't know what's going on in their life. And the way that we treat them, the way that we engage them can change what's going on on the inside. You know, as I was working on this message and I was working on these slides, I I found this name tag. Easily forgotten because I don't matter. I didn't make that name tag. Somebody made that name tag. Hello, my name is easily forgotten because I don't matter. Do you know somebody like that? They're the people in the places where you work, where you go to school. They may be sitting right beside you today. People whose names you don't even know. They may be the the custodian serving in your building. They may be the person who does yard work for you. They may be the person behind the counter at the restaurant or the waiter or waitress who walks up to you. 
It may even be the person who works in the C-suite in your company building who feels isolated and lonely. Do you know somebody who feels easily forgotten? Friends, it may be you this morning. You may be somebody who feels like you don't matter. Can I tell you that you matter to God? The scriptures tell us that God has inscribed our names in the palms of his hand. He says, how can I forget you? It's like a nursing mother forgetting their own child. God says, I can't forget you. Friends, you matter. You matter to God. And he showed it by coming to die on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin to save you. And what he calls on us as his hands and his feet, his representatives who are wearing the name tag, hello, I'm a Christian, he calls on us to reach out and to be flesh, God's representative with flesh on, to talk to people, to hold their hand, to give them a hug, to say, you matter. You matter to God. Will we look at these people and label them as being different or will we reach out with God's love to them? As we look at Ruth, some were quick to label her as being a stranger. But friends, she wasn't a stranger. She had changed her name to follower of the true God, Yahweh. Do you remember that from verse 16? Your God will be my God. She had come to faith in the true God, Yahweh. And now she was there in that, in that city wondering, will people welcome me? You see, Ruth knew what Naomi forgot, which is that Yahweh was the covenant-keeping God who would take care of them. Naomi said, we have nothing and Ruth said, oh no, we have, we have God. God will take care of us. Ruth knew things were tough, but she could trust in the Lord. And as you think about where you are today, what is going on in your world? Friends, if you are a follower of the true God, Yahweh, if you know Jesus Christ, God promises he knows you, he has not forgotten you, and he will come through for you. What does your name tag say this morning? Do you need to do as Ruth did? Do you need to change your name from foreigner to a follower of the true God? If you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to do so today. His arms are open wide to you. He died on the cross to welcome you. And those arms are no longer held by spikes and a cross. They are open wide waiting to welcome you this morning. It just requires you coming to faith in Jesus. If you've already changed your name, If maybe this morning your name tag says this, Christian, that you've come to faith in Christ, are you living like it? Are you reflecting him? There was a story of a young man, I'll close with this, who was a soldier in Alexander the Great's army. And this was a a young soldier who was serving sentry duty. And one night as he was there in the the night watch, he fell asleep. And his his commander came along and found this young sentry asleep, which had placed the entire army in danger because the enemy could have come through where he was supposed to be watching. And he shouted and he woke this young man up and he said, What are you doing? You've endangered the whole army. And he was brought before Alexander the Great. And he knew that the penalty for, for falling asleep on sentry duty was death. And Alexander the Great was a hard man. And as he was sitting there looking at this young soldier who was shaking in fear because he knew what was coming, Alexander the Great had a very rare moment of compassion. And he looked at this young man and he said, Son, what is your name? 
and sensing that there had been a change, that maybe his life would be spared, this, this young soldier stood up as straight as he could, and he said, Sir, my name is Alexander, just like yours. Well, hearing this, Alexander the Great shot out of his chair, and he yelled at the young man, Either change your name or change your behavior. Friends, our name tags as Christians. And the Bible tells us we don't have the option of changing our name, but we do have the option of changing our behavior. We have the privilege of wearing the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're living your life right now in a way that does not reflect your name tag, then friends, let's change our behavior, not our names. As we come to the communion table now, we are reminded of the cost of what it took God to purchase us the shedding of the blood of his precious son, Jesus Christ, who died to take away our sins, who died to give us the privilege of being able to change our name from Christian, from from non-believer, from foreigner and outsider to a Christian, to one who belongs to him. As we come to this table today, we're about to partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The sacrifice that was given as Jesus went to the cross as he gave his life to give you and me the gift of eternal life. What the Bible tells us is as we come to this table, we're to come with clean hands and hearts. It doesn't mean that you've never sinned. It doesn't mean that you didn't even sin this morning. Some of you may have had a fight in the car on the way here and you haven't had time to confess that sin. In a moment, we're going to pass the elements. You're going to hold a piece of bread representing the body of Christ. You're going to hold a cup representing his blood. And I want you just to hold those for a moment. And I want you to think about your life and your behavior this past week, this past month, maybe last year, and say, is there anything I need to confess? Are there things I need to change? And as we start this new year, make the commitment to say, I will change my behavior to match the name that I wear of Christ. Jesus died to purchase us. He paid a high price. And if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Christ, I want you, if you're ready, to take the cup and take the bread as it's passed and say to Jesus, today, Lord, I'm accepting you as my Savior. I'm turning from my sins, and I'm turning to you, Jesus. Thank you for washing away my sins. Thank you for paying the penalty in full for me. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we welcome you to this table. You don't have to be a member of Wayside. You just have to be a part of the family of God, one who belongs to Jesus. So men, will you take and pass the elements and I'd like for you all to hold these and we'll take them together in a moment.
We're told in the scriptures that whenever we come to this table, we're to remember, to remember what Jesus did for us, to remember how much we were worth to God, that he was willing to leave heaven and come to earth, that he was willing to take your place and mine, going to the cross to pay the penalty in full for your sins and my sins. As we begin this new year, I don't want you to remember the mistakes of the past. I don't want you to remember the failures of last year or even this last week. I want you to remember what God did for you. That he wiped away your sins, that he paid them in full, that he went to the cross to reset the account, to pay it in full, to close the account. We owe nothing more when it comes to entrance into heaven. God bought and paid for the ticket in full. But he's given us this new year, this new day to live for him, to go into the world and represent him. So as we remember, as we remember the name tag we wear today, as we remember what God did, I want you to be thankful. To be thankful for the great gift of new life that was bought and paid for through the body of Christ, seated in remembrance of him. We hold in our hand a cup. It's simply juice, but what it represents is so much more. It's the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who was willing to shed his blood to wash away our sins. The Bible tells us that there had to be blood that was shed. Without the remission, it says without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. And all the sacrifices of old couldn't wash away our sins. But as John the Baptist said of Jesus in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's removed them. You're clean. You're forgiven. As we leave here today, God wants us to live in a way that represents who we are. That we belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who gave his life for us. The blood of Christ drinking in remembrance of him. We join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your great grace, not only for the great gift of new life, but, Lord, for giving us even this day of life to go out and be able to represent you. As we walk out of the doors of Wayside today, Father, help us not to hide our name tags. Help us not to, to put them away. But let us, Father, go out and represent your Son, the one whose precious name we bear. May we help others to come to know you, Jesus, to come to faith, to come to new life. And may we live a life that reflects the name that we bear, that of your Son, Jesus. Thank you again, Lord, for loving us and giving us that privilege to be your ambassadors. May we live up to our names. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. To love and serve the Lord. To love and serve the Lord, to love and serve the Lord, to love and serve the Lord, to love and serve the Lord.